Jesus. This is a psalm um, directed to the choir master or to the chief musician. How's that? Chief musician. This is, concerns the uh, uh, prophet Nathan, Nathan, whom God sent to King David after the sin with Bathsheba. Um, you can read about that in uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Uh, it's an interesting account. But here is, it's the account of when Nathan went to King David and gave him a fictionalized account of the sin that David had been involved with. Uh, and David in indignation said, who is this man that would do this? Uh, and talk about boldness. He said, you're the man. It's you. It's you. And so this is a response that David had uh, to that situation. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know that my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and none of what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew my right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. That I will teach transgression, transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these words, and Lord, I pray that as... Uh, uh, as Christians here today, Lord, and I might not be uh, creating them a, in them or us or you a clean heart, but truly, as we might say individually, create in me, God, a clean heart. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for that. Lord, we pray that you will, uh, that as King David has uh, um, mirrored this for us, the forgiveness that you offer. Lord, I pray now that as we uh, move to the service this morning, Lord, that as we open your word, that it might open us and look into us and change us and create us. Lord, make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, who truly is worthy. Amen. Try this. 
Whoa. <laughs> there we go. What I said was, uh, this is going to be a difficult message this morning. It's, it's not a lighthearted one. It's not a lighthearted topic. But it is one that involves a lot of hope for everyone in this room. So, let's look at the uh, beginning of this. And we're going to go through this together. You'll see that at the top, right underneath the title in your Bible... It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. We know that um, in, this, in these psalms that this is part of the inspired word, right? We, our Bible has titles in it um, that have been added um, to just kind of help us organize it. But in the Psalms, the beginning, first line, is, is actually part of what God intended for us to have, and it gives us the context, right? Like, so Gene did a really great job of, of introducing that. Um, this is a song, a public confession that David wrote after uh, the sin with Bathsheba. Um, more specifically, after he betrayed and murdered one of his own men. Uh, a soldier like him in his army fighting for him in his country, a soldier named Uriah. Um, I'm going to do my best to recount this story in a way that is okay for, for the young ears that are listening. Um, I think most of us know it. Some of us might not. Um, so it began in secret. Something in the night that people were not supposed to find out about, right? Just a one-night thing. Um, but when the evidence of that showed, David felt he had to cover it up. I have to hide it. So he arranged to have Uriah, one of his men, one of his servants, killed by putting him on the front lines of, of a battle and telling the commander, withdraw everybody except for Uriah. Leave him there helpless with no support. Now remember, David is the king of Israel, right? It is his job to protect his people and to care for them. And you would think that that would be especially true of a man like Uriah, who is a faithful servant. Right? Interestingly, um, I said Uriah was a servant. Uriah was a solid guy. Um, David actually tried to get Uriah to go home to be with his wife first. Because that would be an easy way to hide things. But he doesn't go. He says, how could I do that? How could I leave my brothers out there fighting when I'm at home? So that's when David has um, him killed. To put it in a modern context, this is Benghazi. This is worse than that, though. 
Because this is somebody who claims to be a believer, who claims to love God. And that brings up a whole host of questions. I don't know if you have these questions. First of all, why does God respond with, with forgiveness to this sin, to this man? I wouldn't. Why does he respond in the way he does? He punishes David. He does punish David. They lose the child. Um, he is told that people in his own family are going to betray him and leave him. That he's going to be on the run from his own son. A man who wasn't a believer, somebody who was very wicked at heart. And he's going to try to kill you. And... But is that all David should lose? If it was your president, wouldn't you want him to go to prison? Maybe even lose his life in the way that he took that life of that soldier. Um, or at least lose his position as king. So why is he allowed to live, allowed to keep his position as king, and allowed to marry the woman of the man that he, he murdered? In the end, it kind of seems like he gets the girl. And that doesn't seem fair. It also doesn't seem fair that the child dies. Secondly, doesn't the Bible say, by your fruits you will know them? Didn't Jesus say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? Are we not told Whoever says, I know God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. 1 John 2. Doesn't the Bible even specifically say that no murderer has eternal life in them? 1 uh, John 3, 15. But here we have a, a man who is a believer. We know that, by the way. God calls him a man after my own heart. Um, we are told that he was a man who had faith in Hebrews chapter 11. We are told that he had the Holy Spirit in Mark 12. So this is a man who knows God, who is a believer. But he commits murder and adultery and then asks God to forgive him and God forgives him. So if we're supposed to know people by our fruit... By their fruit. If we're supposed to know ourselves, right? Because we're told to examine ourselves to see if we are believers. And if we're supposed to do that, how? I mean, what fruit are we supposed to look for? I can murder someone and still be a Christian? Those are just a few questions that this text brings up, and you might have more. So, what do you do with this? When I decided to preach that, it kind of hit me. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> what do we do with that, with all those questions? After studying, though, I think that God has given us this psalm in part to answer some of those questions. He's given us this psalm to explain some of this because it is a song about repentance, first of all, true repentance, Second of all, it is a song about the depth of God's forgiveness. 
how deep it goes. A forgiveness, by the way, that is nothing like my own. If I found out a man that I know did that, I think my compassion for him would probably run short. But this is an example of God's forgiveness going way beyond any forgiveness that you or I could imagine. And I cannot pretend to know all of God's reasons for why he chose to do it the way he did. Um, But just in the fact that we have this chapter in our Bible, I think I can conclude this. That God, in part, allows David to live and allows David to stay as king so that we could know his forgiveness today. So for, for all of those, those of us who are struggling to forgive ourselves or who are struggling to forgive someone here or somebody you know, this is for you. So it's a, this is a difficult chapter, um, but it's for everybody here. Um, it's for any, any of us who have ever wondered what to do after we fell, right? After we screwed things up. It's like a song, uh, I like a song um, that says, I'm picking up the pieces to put them where they go. But where do they go? God, where do they go? This chapter is for screw-ups. It's also for the self-righteous. It's for any of us who have ever thought, oh, I'm, I'm better than that. It's for any of us who have ever refused to forgive somebody. This chapter is for us too. And I'm counting myself in both of those groups, by the way. That's why I said us. Um, for those of us who are screw-ups, meaning... There's a time in our life when we're walking with God, right? Things are going well, and I then fell into deep sin. I betrayed God, or I betrayed my wife, or my husband, or I betrayed my friend, or I betrayed, I don't know who else it would be, somebody else. Um, This passage offers us hope. Because it shows us that God's mercy is a lot bigger than you or me. It goes a lot farther than our own. Um, When it comes to the cross, which David was looking forward to, right? Because he lived before Jesus died. He said he's looking forward to the Messiah who would save him, right? So so David's a pre-cross Christian, right? Someone looking forward to the Christ, to the Messiah. Um, Now, this is also, uh, again, I said for those who are self-righteous, who say, I'm above that, I'm I'm better than that, I'm better than you, I'm better than him or her. Um, And and it's a warning, severe warning for those people. Um, Because what this text shows us, what the story shows us, is that a man after God's own heart can fall into deep sin if he takes his eye off of Jesus and starts to chase after something else 
in God's heart. And the self-righteousness and the attitude that says, oh, I've got it, I don't need help, or I'm better, that's the first step to getting that, that focus from God, who's my only need, to something else. Right? But here's... Um, so screw-ups and self-righteous, right? Those are the two groups. Um, here's something else to just keep in mind as we get into this. Um, the passages I quoted earlier, t- tough, tough passages, right? If you love me, you will keep my... Yeah, if, if whoever says that they know God but does not keep his commandments is a, a liar. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, 2 Corinthians. They're true. Those verses are true. So we cannot ignore that either, right? Is it possible that a man who did the same things that David did could have been self-deceived? could have thought he was a believer, but not really been. I think we know that that's possible. It has to be possible because God says many will come to me in that day, in the the end time day, saying, Lord, Lord, look at all the things we did in your name. We prophesied in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. And then he says, "I, I never knew you. Depart from me. So listen, please listen. God's forgiveness is free for you if you repent. But it is also possible to think you have repented and have found that forgiveness when indeed you have not. That is also possible. And it is easy for us to become self-deceived. What I think this chapter does for us, ultimately, is it gives us a series of principles that help us with these questions, that help us to know, how do I know if I've really repented? How do I know if I have a real relationship with God? Um, And and if I need to repent, how do I do that? If I really have messed up that that terribly, or even half that terribly, right? Um, So I can illustrate that, that I need this passage too. I mean, I grew up in the church. I was a, I was a church kid. Um, who here's a church kid? Raise your hands, church kids. Oh, man. Wow. Okay. Yeah, most of us, right? And I grew up thinking that I have what everybody else here has. I mean, I just never considered that it wouldn't be that. But I came to find out later in my life that I had never really repented, actually. And I was very self-reliant, self-efficient. I was going to show you a picture. I didn't have time to get it of myself in Walmart um, with... Five or six bags full of groceries with no bags, balancing it. Gavin was there, and he can attest to this. <laughs> so it's a funny picture, right? And how many guys in here, right? Don't get the cart. We just go for it. Um, well, that's, that's a funny picture, but honestly, that kind of I-can-do-this attitude, right, with, um, with spiritual things, with relationships, That's a good sign you're headed for a fall, right? Pride goes before a fall. Um, For me, it was a physical fall. That was inevitable. Thankfully, it didn't happen. I did drop a loaf of bread, though. (laughs) 
Okay, so what we're going to look at this morning is five principles of repentance. Five principles to discern the, the state of my heart, my repentance before God. Um, let's, let's jump to verse 1 and 2, and we'll, we'll jump in there. David begins his confession, public confession, by the way, right? To the choir master. Wow, like if, if Pastor Josiah fell into deep sin, really, really deep sin, prison-level stuff, was let out, came back to the church, said, here's a song I've written for you to sing about this. Right? Very public. David is not hiding what happened. We'll, we'll get to that later. Um, he says this. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Um, notice that he doesn't say, well, we, we often say this. Um, I don't know if you guys have said these things. Um, have mercy on me, please. I'll do anything. He doesn't say, forgive me, please. I feel so terrible about what I did. I genuinely, I'm sorry. He doesn't say, God, have mercy on me. I'll never do this again. I promise you. He doesn't say, have mercy on me because I've changed. What he says is, have mercy on me because of your love and because of your mercy. Right? So here's the first principle of repentance. God's forgiveness is fully based on what he has done and on who he is. His repentance is fully based on who he is and on what he has done. You can't earn it. You can't earn forgiveness for whatever thing that you're, you struggle letting go of that you've done. You cannot earn forgiveness for that thing any more than you can earn Jesus going and being nailed to a cross and suffering there. You cannot earn it. And I know some of you are struggling here because I've had conversations. I've talked to some of you who um, you're struggling to forgive yourself or to let go of things that have happened. And you, you think, if I can't forgive myself, if I can't feel better about this, how could God feel better about this? I mean, he's more holy than I am. And I understand that struggle because I spent years, and when I was in college, I spent years of, of, of my college year, uh, years of my college years struggling with my repentance struggling with the state of my heart and whether or not I was really saved or not. Um, in verse 3, let's keep going. David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Some of you might feel that. And those of you who I've talked to, I know you feel that. You cannot get your mind off of that thing that happened. You can't stop thinking about what you did. It's always before you. But, when we say God couldn't forgive me because I can't forgive myself, do you see how that logic isn't, isn't 
how that's flawed logic? That's my second point. We need to stop elevating our feelings. This is the second principle about repentance. We need to stop elevating our feelings above God's word as though our feelings or, or our thoughts determine truth. Determine what God thinks or doesn't think. My feelings do not impact that little at all. Um, if you think about it, actually, that logic that my feelings determine what is accurate and true, that's what got me into this mess in the first place, isn't it? Because there was a time when I knew that I shouldn't do this because I knew what God said, but I chose to do it because I wanted to. And so those of you who are struggling with that, you're still trusting that those, you're still trusting yourself to determine what is possible or not possible. That your forgiveness somehow based, is based on how you feel. So my dad, uh, he used to give this illustration to me, but when I was struggling in this time, there were sometimes I was very low about it and very, I, I was struggling in my heart. And my dad, uh, he took a coin, or he would do this, he would speak of it usually, he didn't actually have a coin all the time. But he said, he would say, there's two sides of the pride coin. Two sides of the pride coin. The one side is, I've got this, right? I'm good enough. You know, the other side is, why don't I have this? I should be good enough. And that's what often we're doing when we elevate our feelings to the level of God's word. I should be better than this. If I was a genuine Christian, I would never have done that. Now, let me, let me balance that perspective real quick. Do feelings play a part? In, even in... in, in coming to know Jesus and getting saved, do feelings play a part in that? I think so, because God says, I oppose the proud, but I give grace to the humble, right? Those who know that they're needy, those who have need. Um, so yes, if you're, if you're living a life of sin and, and you don't feel you need to ask forgiveness, I'm not doing anything wrong, it's, it's fine. If you keep asking forgiveness and then, like, you don't really care. You're just doing it for show because your wife is there and you have to say what she wants to hear to make her feel better so she's not angry at you anymore, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's pride. And God says he opposes the proud. Um, but if it's, that, if it's that I can't sh stop feeling bad about this, so what? God didn't say, I will forgive you if you don't feel bad anymore about what you did and you get over it in your own heart. Then I'll forgive you. So our, our attempt to feel good about ourselves, that's just pride. Um, let's look at verse 4. Let's keep going. Another principle of repentance is that it freely acknowledges, I use the word dank, right? Musty, old, disgusting reality of our sin. Um, repentance acknowledges the dank reality of our sin. Look what, he, uh, what David writes. He says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
In other words, our failure, it's not God's failure. Right? Um, when, when he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment, I have sinned against God. That doesn't mean God chose the wrong king for Israel. That doesn't mean God makes mistakes. That doesn't mean God saved the wrong person. What it means is I've sinned. So God is justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. He, he allowed me to sin. I mean, he could have crashed a semi-truck from 2022 back in time through the wall and stopped me. But he didn't do that, right? He allowed it, but it is to confirm what he says. It's to show that he is holy and I am not holy that he allowed this. So that he might be justified in his words and blameless when he judges me because that's what I deserve is judgment. So that's the... That's the desperate nature of our sin. Um, look, look what he goes on to say. Uh, he, he's acknowledging the grubby truth of it, right? This is who I am. This is what I did. Uh, look, look what he says in verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in sin. Or your translation might say, in iniquity. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That doesn't mean his mother sinned. It means I was sinful from the time I was not even born. And he says, behold, you delight in truth in, in the inward being. So my inward reality is sin. God's inward reality is truth. I delight in sin. He delights in truth. That's my condition before Christ. And what David is saying is that even before I, I even before I became king and knew and became a child of God, that was who I was. I was a sinner in my core. So Disney is going to let a lot of people down someday. That's who we are. That's who every single person here is. So if we can't acknowledge that, maybe it's pride again. Listen, if we can't come to the grips with the fact that we're sinful, if we can't come to grips with that fact, that we're sinners, if we can't acknowledge it, speak of it, share the sin that we've done openly so that, like illustrating that I am really a sinner, like I am, if we can't share the real things that we've done, it is unlikely then that we would even feel a need for Christ, right? If I can't acknowledge that I need a Savior, then why do I believe in Jesus? And therefore, it's unlikely that somebody who has never acknowledged the weight of their sin and who they are in their core, it's unlikely that they will be saved or have been saved. Because they're still trying to, to change themselves or to be good enough, good enough of themselves on their own. And that's, by the way, I think what Jesus said people would do in the end, to go back to that question from the beginning. When, when they say, Lord, Lord, look at all of the things we did in your name. Right? We prophesied. We cast out demons. We did all these amazing things in your name. Likely, that was their perspective on it. Because that's what they say to him, right? They don't say, we believed in you. They say, we did all this stuff. 
So they still thought that they were good in, in and of themselves, that they were accomplishing God's purpose by doing these things, and that I'm good enough, right? I'm better than that. And if you've never recognized that you need Christ, then how is Christ going to save you? He said those who trust me for their salvation, they receive the right to become children of God. So here's the point. True repentance acknowledges sin. It acknowledges the reality, the dank reality of your sin. Whatever good I have in me, it's because God has put it there. God has worked in my life. He's changed my heart. He's made me different. He's fixed me. So that now there is love in me. It's not because I'm a loving person by nature. It's because of his grace, right? And God can do that for you. God can do that for you. I feel like I almost need to say it a third time. Look at verse 7. Here's the beautiful thing. Despite how terrible David's sin was, despite how low that that got, and, and how, how despicable the whole thing is. Though he did more than most of us have ever done, he believed that God could fix it. He believed that God could change his heart. Look at verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So, so not only will I be forgiven, not only do I believe God can wash me white as snow, I believe that I can have joy again. I can have joy in my life again, even though this thing happened. Uh, verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. It can be as though it never happened. Blotted from the record what he's saying. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. You can change my heart, God. You can change me. You can make me into a new person. You can bring me from this self-seeking spiral I'm in, where it's about how I feel and I'm stuck, into the freedom of forgiveness and joy And, and what was the third one? Lost my place. Forgiveness and joy. <laughs> so, not only does David, let's go back through the principles. Um, God's forgiveness is not based on what I've done. Principle number one. It's based on who he is. Principle number two. I can't elevate my own feelings to the level of God. That's pride. Principle number three, I'm forgetting my own principles. They're God's principles. Um, we need to acknowledge the reality of our sin. Sorry. Principle number three, we need to acknowledge the reality of our sin, and then principle... Number four, God can change you. 
He can change us. Okay, that brings us to our last principle. It was a little bit different back then. Uh, the next verse is a little bit confusing. It was a little bit different back then because he's a pre-cross Christian. Remember we talked about that? This is before Jesus died on the cross, and God had a different way, economy, of working with people at that time. In this way, God did not guarantee his spirit would stay in a person. Um, God's spirit would come on, onto kings who weren't even Christians and believers and work through them. And God would then remove his spirit. When they, when they failed. Now, post-cross, we have a guarantee, right? The Spirit is a guarantee. That's the word it's used. It's, we cannot lose the Holy Spirit. God will not take it from us. So there's a difference between what David was fearing God would do to him and what God has promised he won't do to us if we are believers. Okay? So look with this. Uh, if we keep reading... He says in verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. There's the word joy again. And uphold me with a willing spirit. And here's the final, final thing, final principle. And I'll say one more thing before, we, before I share it. Could God have judged David right there? Sure, he could have easily, right? That's what David deserved, after all. Did he deserve to remain king? No. Did he deserve death? <coughs> yes. But God wanted to show off his mercy. God wanted to show off his mercy. And that's something, again, we can't earn that, right? So look at verse 5. If we can draw one more thing from this passage... Or not verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 13. <laughs> One more thing from this passage is true repentance is unashamed. True repentance is unashamed. Listen to David's words in verse 13. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Like I said earlier, this is a public song of confession. I'm going to sing about this, about what God has done. And it says in the first line of it, when he went into Bathsheba, that's part of my song, because that's what God saved me from. And he's not ashamed, not because what he did wasn't shameful, it was shameful. He's not ashamed because he knows he's been forgiven. And again, God's thoughts of me are what count, not my own. It's what God believes is true of me that matters. So David is a man who went off the rails. He's the singer-songwriter. He's the, the leader, country, national leader, who went off the rails. But when he came back, he wanted everybody to know what God had done in his life. What he did and how God saved him from it. So that, like he says, so that sinners would return to you. He wants other people to experience the same thing that I experienced. 
I experience God's forgiveness, God, that's what I want here. I want you to restore to me the joy. I want you to forgive me so that I can tell people what you've done so that they can come to know you too, that they can have that forgiveness too. So yes, God could have brought justice immediately. That would have been the due consequence, but he also chose, um, or there, sorry, there were consequences, but he also chose to forgive David and to answer his prayer and to showcase his grace. So verse 15, we'll finish out what we read. He says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. In other words, again, I can't pay for this. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You will not reject if my heart is broken. So let's be broken. Okay? God wants us broken. He wants us to know our need is what I mean. He wants us fixed, too. But he wants a humble spirit that, that knows that I got nothing without Christ. He doesn't expect us to earn that by feeling worse or doing more. He wants us to be remorseful. Yes, he wants us to do more. Yes. But he does not expect to... We can't earn what Jesus did. And he doesn't expect us to. So if you are someone who's caught in a web right now, I know I've not answered all the questions. There's a lot more questions here. But if you're somebody who's caught in this web of, of shame or remorse, let go of your pride. Let go of your pride. Either the I got this pride, right? Or the why don't I have this pride? I should have this. I shouldn't have done that. I, I'm better than that. None of us are better than that. Before Christ. Because he has changed us, right? And now we're looked at as not as sinners, but as saints. But that's because of him. Okay? So if that's you, if, if you're still there, if you're still stuck in that spot, uh, I'm going to end on verse 17. Again, that the sacrifices of God, what he desires is a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart he will not despise. That's a promise.